This is The Guardian. Today, why is Clause 9 of the Nationality and Borders Bill so controversial? I want to address... I want to address the government's Clause 9, which proposes removing people's citizenship without notice and, in effect, removing their right of appeal. You've probably seen Clause 9 of the Borders and Nationality Bill in the headlines. When people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds raise concerns about this, deep concerns, the response from the government opposite is, trust us. As that bill moves through the House of Lords, it's been especially criticised on Clause 9, which its critics say creates a two-tier citizenship in Britain that is racist and unconstitutional. But the government's ability to strip someone's British citizenship is actually nothing new. So deprivation, I've done uh, E3, N3, C7. E3, C7... N3. They're not just codes. They're the clients of immigration lawyer Fahad Ansari. He specialises in cases of citizenship deprivation. So E3 is a British-born citizen. His parents migrated to the country from Bangladesh. His parents were naturalised before he was born. E3 was born in Britain. It's his home. He has family ties to Bangladesh. He lived his entire life in the UK. He was working here. He had an arranged marriage to uh, a lady over there, Bangladesh. Due to the immigration rules that require somebody to be earning a significant amount of money in order to sponsor their wife to move to the UK with them, he was unable to do so. And while he was looking for employment with the requisite salary, he would travel back and forth to Bangladesh He had a child over there and his wife was pregnant with their second child in 2017. In May 2017, E3 travels to Bangladesh to be there for the birth of his second child. He didn't know it then, but he wouldn't be coming back. He's there for about six to seven weeks and then just the day before he's due to travel back to the UK, his mother receives a letter at his home in East London telling him that he had been deprived of his citizenship because it was assessed that he had previously sought to travel abroad for the purposes of engaging in terrorism-related activity and that he was assessed as being a threat to national security. He's stranded there. And and bear in mind, E3, throughout his time in the UK, was never arrested, was never charged. Now, he's stuck abroad. He has no idea what's happening. He's left with a young family, a wife, a toddler, and a newborn, with no source of income, no idea how he's going to accommodate them long-term, how long this is going to take. And as can be seen with this case, the appeals process is extremely lengthy. And beyond that, we really don't know much more. Not E3's name, not what he's supposed to have done, nor why his citizenship was taken away on that particular day in May, almost five years ago. But we do know he's not alone. In the course of the war on terror, hundreds of others have had their Britishness revoked too. In the interests, so the Home Office says, 
of keeping the public safe. And now comes Clause 9, empowering the government even more. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, the UK's erosion of citizenship rights and what Clause 9 will mean. Fial Jodri, you're a professor of law at the University of Durham, and you've done a lot of work on the subject of stripping of citizenship. Could you outline what exactly it means? Citizenship stripping is probably one of the most drastic measures a state can take at effectively washing its hands of one of its citizens. It's been referred to by the US Supreme Court as something that's worth than torture is effectively rendering them outside the protection of the state. And if they're made stateless and outside the protection of any state in an international system where protection by states is crucial, very dramatic and drastic measure that states can take. So one of the things the Home Office says when defending this bill is that the state's ability to deprive people of their citizenship has actually existed for over a century. Could you tell me about the roots of these powers? Yeah, I mean, they are right. The ability of the state to remove citizenship is something that goes back to the British Nationality and Status of Aliens Act 1914, very much in the context of the First World War and fears about, you know, British German citizens as being uh, spies or working for the German state at the time. And it was on a series of quite sort of restricted grounds aimed at people who were naturalized as British citizens who had effectively engaged with countries that the UK was at war with. That sort of legislation existed in 1914, but was used very sparingly. This is only one of the major crimes against humanity that Germany must answer when the war is won. Have you remembered many pictures like these occurring at intervals in the past decade? The removal of citizenship was something that became a big issue during the Second World War because of the way that Germany had stripped citizenship of Jewish people. And so the horrors of the Second World War meant that after the Second World War, citizenship stripping was seen as something that was a, a, a practice that was done by the Nazis as a precursor to making people sort of non-humans. Since the German people permitted the barbaric forces of Nazism to rule them, have you noted grimly the constant tide of refugees from almost every land in Europe? So seeing how citizenship stripping was used in Nazi Germany, how did the UK and other allies respond after the war? That sort of movement included a series of human rights obligations that aimed to protect people from being made stateless. And so the UK signed up in 1961 to the UN Convention. I and my friend approached the Russians, said could we come in? They kept us waiting in Prague for some weeks, and then agreed. During the Cold War, it was used largely in relationship to defectors, people who were involved in espionage and worked for the Soviet Union. Uh, I want to live in the Soviet Union because I'm a socialist and it's a socialist country, and I enjoy doing so. On the other hand, naturally, everybody likes his own country best. It was never used, for example, in Northern Ireland throughout the period of the Troubles. It was regarded as something that had fallen into disuse. The last time it was used in the 20th century was 1973, I think, and after that it wasn't used at all. So that takes us up to 1973, and for three decades after that, not a single Brit had their citizenship revoked. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. This is not a battle between the United States of America and terrorism but between the free and democratic world and terrorism. Fahad Ansari, you're an immigration lawyer 
At the turn of the century, there were suddenly whole new categories of people who were deemed enemies of the state and could pose a security risk. What new legislation was enacted under the umbrella of the war on terror? There was a lot of pressure on the then Labour government of Tony Blair to deport Abu Hamza, a Muslim preacher who preached from the Finsbury Park Mosque in North London. He's accused of sympathising with terrorists and extremists. Down the road is another Muslim cleric named by French intelligence as raising money and men for the fundamentalist cause. But the only problem was was that Abu Hamza was a British citizen and he had been for 16 years. He was a dual British-Egyptian national, so he could not be just easily kicked out of the UK. In order to do that, they'd have to remove his citizenship first. For people like you being killing for centuries and being killing for decades, if they want to retaliate for the dead because you don't listen, then I can no way say to them, we are not allowed to do these things. Because now, the problem was is the previous test did not allow them to do that because he hadn't been convicted of any crime, he hadn't committed treason against the Crown. So as a result, they fast-tracked this new legislation through, and the new test that came in allowed them to do that. Because it was used against somebody who was a figure of hate, he was an easy target to you know, swing through so much legislation. In fact, colloquially, the law was called the Hamza Amendment in legal circles because it was recognized that it was just for Abu Hamza. And uh, three days after that act passed, Abu Hamza was to, to try to deprive him of his citizenship. So Fial, what did this law actually entail? After 9-11, they had the Nationality Immigration Asylum Act of 2002, and this created a new single standard of removing citizenship. Um, the test was whether the Secretary of State believed that the individual had done anything that was seriously prejudicial to the vital interests of the UK or its overseas territories. But at the same time, it broadened the groups that it could be applied to. So before 2002, citizenship deprivation only applied to people who were naturalized as British citizens, that is, people who had another citizenship and applied to become British. The 2002 Act applied it to all British citizens, whether they were born British or whether they applied to become British as naturalized citizens who and people who migrated to this country. However, although it applies to all citizens in theory, in practice, it can only apply to people who are dual nationals because you can't deprive people who are single nationals because that would make them stateless. So Farhad, this is the first step of widening who this law could apply to, whereby one could be born in Britain, but if you hold another passport and have dual nationality, your British citizenship could be at risk. Fast forward a few years later, in 2006, you had a case of uh, David Hicks, who was a dual British-Australian citizen, being detained at Guantanamo Bay. If you look at the people who have been released from Guantanamo Bay, if you had a UK passport, if you had a French passport, if you had a Swedish passport... Because he was trying to rely on his UK citizenship to get the British government to intervene on his behalf, and he successfully did so, the threshold was again lowered to conducive to the public good. Because there's no statutory definition of conducive to the public good, it was up to the Secretary of State to define that. Immigration Asylum Nationality Act 2006 was effectively brought in to allow his citizenship to be removed, and they did that by lowering the test 
from seriously prejudicial to the vital interests of the state to conducive to the public good. So was his citizenship conducive to the public good? That's a huge turning point for the law in, in order for that threshold to be reduced. It's going to now affect a lot more people. Yeah, so once that change had been made, the ability of the British government to remove citizenship was significantly increased. Does the Home Secretary reasonably believe that citizenship is conducive to the public good? And what then happens is, well, what do we mean by conducive to the public good? The range of possibilities of what can be applied to understand what's conducive to the public good is quite broad. What I'm trying to do here is, and this will be followed up with the action in the next few weeks, as I, I think you will see, is to send a clear signal out that the rules of the game have changed. We welcome people here who are peaceful and law-abiding. People who want to be British citizens should share our values and our way of life. But if you come to our country from abroad, don't meddle in extremism. Because if you meddle in it or get engaged in it, you're going to go back out again. And usually it was used once people left the UK. So there, there are cases where it seems quite deliberate policy to wait for people to leave the UK and then strip them of their citizenship. Now, this is the beginning. Let me just say this to people very, very clearly. This is the beginning of there will be a lot of battles in, in, the, in the months ahead on this. Let's be quite clear because of the way that the law has been interpreted over a long period of time. Bearing in mind that these people haven't been prosecuted for anything, they haven't been prosecuted of any crime. This is an act of the Home Secretary using executive discretion. So what that means is that the Home Secretary reaches a view and signs a paper and that has immediate effect that day that, you know, that their citizenship is removed. They brought in an appeal process whereby if you're deprived of your citizenship, your appeal will not go to the normal immigration tribunal, but it will go to a body called the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. It has special powers which allows it to rely on what's called closed material. And this essentially is secret evidence that is withheld from the appellant and the appellant's lawyers on the basis that to disclose it would compromise intelligence and intelligence sources. And so after 2006, the law is amended yet again. And in the years that followed, there were concerns about Brits travelling to Iraq and to Syria. Dufyal, what happens next? The power to strip foreign-born Britons of their citizenship. The UK passes a controversial amendment to its immigration bill. Critics argue the measure could leave people stateless and stuck. In 2014, you then had a further response to a case called the Al-Jedda case, somebody who was an Iraqi who had naturalized as a British citizen and then was detained um, subsequently, I think it was in Iraq. And the UK basically wanted to remove his citizenship. And he argued that they couldn't remove his citizenship because he would be made stateless. He was a British citizen at the time. He didn't have Iraqi nationality. It must be remembered it's a, a privilege to be in the UK, not a right. It's a citizenship that's been given to them. And if they flaunted that right uh, with involvement in terrorism-related activity, then, of course, there's going to be consequences. So they then introduced this amendment through the Immigration Act of 2014 that allows the Home Secretary 
in the case of somebody who is a naturalized citizen, remove their citizenship as long as they have the potential of becoming a citizen of another state. Now, Home Secretary Theresa May will have to have reasonable grounds to believe that those affected are able to get citizenship somewhere else, meaning, she claims, they'll never be made stateless. So basically, after 15 years of legislation, the laws have dramatically expanded. You no longer need to hold two passports to have your British citizenship removed. If you're theoretically eligible for dual nationality, which is millions of people in the UK, you could be stripped of British citizenship. And those decisions are left in the hands of the Home Secretary, who doesn't have to consult the courts or Parliament for doing so. Yeah, that's that's accurate summary of where we are, yeah. And I think that, that sort of racialised element is also clear when we look at how citizenship deprivation was never seen as a national security tool in the context of terrorism in Northern Ireland or other forms of extremism or terrorism. And why is this seen as a national security tool now? Part of that is, well, they're not really British. Fahad, you've represented many clients who've actually had their citizenship taken away. Have you seen an increase in these kind of cases over the last decade? Absolutely. If you look at the period up to 2003, for three decades, nobody had been deprived of their citizenship. Then between 2003 and 2010, probably a handful, maybe seven or eight. And then from 2010 onward, it just you know, accelerated significantly. Shamima Begum last summer in the al Raj camp in northern Syria, where she remains to this day. The Home Secretary has stripped her of her British citizenship for running away to become an Islamic State fighter's bride aged just 15. With the peak year being 2017, where we had 104 people deprived of their citizenship in a single year. So the Home Secretary's deprived you of your British citizenship? Yeah. But I've heard other people are being sent back to Britain. Well, can you tell me about the experience of some of your clients? Why have they been subject to these kind of orders? The, the short answer to that is we don't know because we've never seen the specific allegations or the uh, evidence against them. Neither they have seen it nor we have seen it. All you're given is a general assessment along the lines of it's assessed that you are a threat to national security. It's assessed that you tried to travel to Syria or that you did travel to Syria and you aligned with a group that itself is aligned with al-Qaeda or ISIS. But you understand that the British government would deem yourself, as someone who fights with al-Nusra, a terrorist? Well, what can I say? If they view me as a terrorist, then what can I do for them? You know, uh, if they're terrified of me, then what can I do about it? Sometimes listeners, I guess, listening to these stories will think that, well, these clients must have been in some way involved in or supportive of terrorism or at least implicated in some very other serious crimes. Is that the case? It goes back to the fundamental principle of the rule of law and the presumption of innocence. I mean, we have some of the broadest anti-terrorism legislation in the Western Hemisphere. If there is evidence, then we have a criminal justice system, we have the powers, why not bring them to a court of law, show them the evidence and allow them their day in court to challenge that evidence. The Supreme Court has ruled that Shamima Begum should not be allowed to return here to challenge the removal of her British citizenship. 
The court ruled unanimously that her rights were not breached when she was refused permission to return. The, the last time you had wholesale deprivation of citizenship in Europe was in Nazi Germany. And that's not a good place, not a good starting point. The fact that deprivation has increased significantly should make everyone stop and question where we are heading with this. And there are already examples of wrongfully revoking someone's citizenship, in effect destroying years of their life, as in the case of the British man known as E3, stripped of his... Uh, Farhad, we started the episode hearing about one of your clients, E3, who had his citizenship suddenly revoked when he travelled to Bangladesh a few years ago. What was it like for him to be exiled from his home? Perplexing. He just didn't understand why. E3 felt lost. He felt afraid. I recall him specifically being concerned about whether the British intelligence had shared any information about his deprivation with the Bangladeshi authorities because in Bangladesh, the way they treat anyone accused of terrorism is to detain them. They're often extrajudicially killed as well. He was afraid to go outside, to go to the market, to go shopping in the village he was living in. He goes, it's not, it's not usual for somebody with a British accent um, who's born and raised in the UK to suddenly decide to get up and relocate long-term to Bangladesh. So he's always afraid that people might report him, might find him that he's strange that this person is here and call the authorities. He's worried he may not see his mother again. His mother was elderly living on her own in London. But last month, E3 won his appeal. This is a big case for you. What did the court rule? The way E3 won and others have won is on the basis that the order had left them stateless. Now, E3 was assessed to be a dual British-Bangladeshi national by virtue of his parents being Bangladeshi. The courts reached the conclusion that that was incorrect and that his Bangladeshi citizenship had lapsed at the age of 21. So at that point where he was deprived, he was solely a British national and that had left him stateless. Even now, because although they've given back him his citizenship, they're refusing to recognise his youngest daughter who was born after they deprived him. He's going to be coming back to the UK to be with his mum and also to fight his ongoing legal challenge. Coming up, how Clause 9 of the Nationality and Borders Bill makes it even easier to strip someone's British citizenship. So, Tafiyan, now we do come to today and the bill currently going through Parliament and one of the most contested aspects of it is Clause 9. Can you explain exactly what it is and what it would change? So, Clause 9 is an amendment to the British Nationality Act 1981, Section 40. In the clause the government's inserted, it says that someone subject to these new rules may appeal against the decision to the first-tier tribunal. And that section allows the government the power to deprive a person of their British citizenship, but it includes procedural safeguards on how that power can be exercised, the requirement to give a person notice that their citizenship is about to be stripped. But as I understand it, Rule 8 of the Special Immigration Appeals Commission gives individuals 28 days to appeal deprivation of citizenship if they're outside the United Kingdom. Doesn't he agree with me that the minister in responding today has got to give absolute clarity that that 28 days will be extended. 
person can be deprived of their citizenship, therefore, if this is passed, without being told that they've been deprived of their citizenship, the reasons for that deprivation, or that they have a right of appeal against the deprivation. Uh, my honourable friend is absolutely right. How can you know when the 28 days are going to run if you've not received notice of your of the decision to strip your citizenship? It's absolutely basic. In, in Kafka's trial, Joseph K may not have known the evidence of the charge, but he knew that there was a charge. Um, here, you're not even being told that you've had your citizenship removed. You don't know that your rights are being taken away. How are you going to challenge that? It's so shocking. I mean, the British government has argued that all it changes is the fact that the government, as you said, doesn't have to notify people that their citizenship is being stripped if it would be difficult to do so, and that this law would only affect a tiny number of people. So why does it matter so much? So the grounds on which they don't have to notify the person isn't just if it would be difficult to do so. It's also if it's in the interest of national security or the interest of the relationship between the UK and another country. I mean, that's quite a lot to sink in there. You know, there's even the lower standard. It is otherwise in the public interest not to tell them. So the idea is that it's because it's difficult to notify somebody is a red herring. The power is much broader than that. Fahad, We've heard from Professor Jordri in this episode that really the history of deprivation orders is the government losing a court case on appeal and then introducing a new law to give them the powers the courts previously denied. There have been a number of successful appeals on citizenship deprivation cases recently. Do you think that's why Clause 9 has been introduced? Without a shadow of a doubt, there was a case called D4, and this was a young lady in the camps in Syria, who was deprived of her citizenship. The Home Office never provided her with notice. Instead, they put it on file. And in the High Court, that decision was struck down um, as being unlawful. And our submission is that that cannot encompass a permission to remove citizenship without giving notice. It's on the back of that that Clause 9 was brought in. So it's it's not a very hidden thing. Everybody can see it for what it is. How will Clause 9 affect your work and the clients you represent? Now, the practical implication of that is how long the appeals process takes. And if you are unaware that you've been deprived, well, then you're not going to appeal naturally enough until you become aware. How would you become aware? Uh, Most likely on your trying to re-enter the UK when you're trying to board that plane from a foreign airport and you're not allowed to board it, and then you contact the consulate or the embassy and you're told that you're deprived. Now, that already has removed your, your, your timings. More concerningly, you could be arrested, you could be detained, or you could be using your passport for internal travel in a foreign country and suddenly your passport will flag up and then you're detained for being illegally in the country or for not having a visa or... To be perfectly frank, I think this current hysteria of a closed line is helpful because it has helped to bring attention to the wider issue. But the real issue is the fact that they can deprive you in the first place. Tafian, away from the legal side, there is something else, isn't there? I mean, a feeling amongst millions of people in this country that their Britishness is somehow conditional, that it's secondary. You know, basically, if you're white British, your citizenship is rock solid. And if you're not, it can be taken away. And I just think about my dad who would always say, you'll never be fully accepted. You remember, you always need your dual nationality. You'll never be fully British. And we'd always be like, don't be ridiculous. Don't be silly. Because he would all, you know, suggest that it could be taken away at any given moment. And now, in a bizarre way... 
it can be. I mean, I, I'm talking to you as a Pakistani Brit. I understand you're a Bangladeshi Brit. How much does it worry you? How much does it emotionally affect you? Absolutely. I think it shows the vulnerability and the sort of inequality that exists between different British citizens, that the idea that we're all equal British citizens have equal protection is fundamentally undermined by the fact that some British citizens who are predominantly white British citizens have a secure level of citizenship that other British citizens, such as me and yourself and other people of colour of descendant of migrants, of minorities. Now, our citizenship is not as secure. Uh, Mr. Speaker, my grandfather, along with thousands of others, came to this country 70 years ago, working seven days a week in squalid conditions to help rebuild this country. You hope the government will use this power sensibly, but again, that's relying on executive discretion. You can't account for what kind of governments will be in power in 5, 10, 15 years' time. And once you've created these powers, once you've eroded these standards, you're making it increasingly difficult to build those protections back in again. The burning question that is now on the lips of everyone from a BAME background right across the country. When is he coming for me? A lot of people feel that vulnerability. People I know on my, you know, amongst friends in WhatsApp group, this sort of thing wouldn't normally register for them. This particular legislation has really hit home for them, and they are like, "This is outrageous." Uh, I, I think that I think that the right, I think the honourable gentleman opposite uh, should look at the Conservative front bench today, and he should withdraw what he's just said, uh, Mr. Speaker. He should withdraw it. Shameful. Somebody who works in this area, this is something I've been aware of, but people who I wouldn't normally are kind of saying, hang on, why is this happening? And, and they're shocked when you tell them the details of what's happening and how it can happen and how we got here. The Fial, thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. That was Fahad Ansari and The Fial Chaudhry. My thanks to them. To keep on top of what's happening in the House of Lords on the Borders Bill, do head over to theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Mightley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.